Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today, I have got a primer for you on pediatric stroke with one of my local pediatric neurologists who specializes in stroke, Dr. Megan Barry. This is a big topic, and we're going to hopefully dig into it a little bit further in future podcasts. But for this one, it's going to be a topic overview of what do you need to know about the recognition, diagnosis, and management of pediatric stroke. Megan is going to introduce herself with her titles and tell us how she came to this work, and then we're going to get right into it. My name is Megan Berry. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Colorado. I'm a pediatric neurohospitalist. I also spend 25% of my time at the University of Colorado Hospital doing adult stroke. You got to treat adults too. <sighs> I do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I asked uh, Megan here a little bit unfairly today to, uh, I just told her I wanted to talk about pediatric stroke, which is, you know, an entire fellowship in and of itself. And we're, we're not going to do uh, a whole fellowship worth of discussions, but, but mostly I wanted to get an overview of the problem. You know, there, there's a ton of podcasts and resources out there that are like debating what the best thing for adult stroke is. And I feel like in kids when they show up, I mean, I have a protocol on what to do, but um, a lot of places are kind of like, we're not quite sure what to do. And so um, I guess I'm wondering maybe first, are there obvious differences in either the definition or sort of the approach to ped stroke versus an adult? The So not really. The definition of stroke is the same between adult and pediatric stroke, although the etiologies of stroke are very different uh, between pediatric and adults. It is not the straightforward atrial fibrillation or high blood pressure that we often see in the adult population. So the differential of why kids have stroke is much, much broader. Um, so it takes a lot to think through why kids are having strokes. All right. We're going to get to that. Is there any change in terminology? Like, does my um, remembrance from medical school of things like hemorrhagic versus ischemic still apply as like the major breakdown in how we think about stroke? Yes. So um, the two major strokes, hemorrhagic and ischemic, totally correct. Uh, however, in pediatrics, it's closer to a 50-50 ratio between ischemic versus hemorrhagic, where in adults, it's about 80% ischemic strokes. Does the term TIA have any place in pediatric stroke? Like, is that a thing that happens? It is. Yes, we do see some TIAs. We see that a lot in kids who have um, abnormalities in their arteries in their brains. So when they drop their pressures, they might have TIAs or stroke-like symptoms without actual imaging confirmation of a stroke. I, my assumption is, um, from an epidemiology perspective, that the, the big divide in, in risk factors is neonates right around birth um, and then older kids. Is that is that true? And then maybe let's start with the, the neonates or the perinatal strokes. Yes. So that is totally correct. We do divide perinatal strokes from childhood strokes. We define perinatal stroke as a stroke occurring between 28 weeks gestation to 28 days postnatally. And then childhood strokes is 28 days to 18 years of age. What's the reason for making that divide? Like, is there something different about what causes them or how you treat them? So the highest risk for stroke in our entire lifetime is going to be right around the time of birth. Uh, so it peaks really high right at birth, and then it goes back down. 
And oftentimes the risk factors for stroke in that perinatal period don't exist in the rest of our lifetimes. And so that's kind of the the major reason for differentiating those. Some of the risk factors for neonatal stroke include both maternal and neonatal factors. Just being born, our coagulation cascade goes skyrocketing so that we don't bleed out when we're getting born. It's super traumatic. But other things that may contribute are, are like inherited thrombophilias, cardiac lesions, any sort of coagulation disorders. And then maternal factors is anything that might um, cause pregnancy or delivery to be complicated. If you have a, a neonate that's born and there is some concern for stroke, what does the workup look like for that? Or what do you, what do, you do? Some of the listeners work in delivery hospitals where they, they may see these. Yeah. So the workup is a lot dependent on what the situation is. So if it's a bleed, um, getting an MRI and looking for um, any vessel abnormalities, so MRAs with MRVs. Uh, there is new studies out there that say that doing a full thrombophilia workup is really not necessary, especially around the newborn period. If they get older and more risk factors occur, then those types of tests can be done. But a lot is just supportive care in the neonatal now, time frame. Follow up because th- those are extensive and, and pretty expensive workups um, for pretty little diagnostic gain. Yes. Yeah. Probably um, the biggest one is just the MRI with yeah. MRA. Yeah. You know, and, and I think my experience um, in residency was that the the kids who you had some concern for a stroke, you, you weren't generally discovering it in the in the midst of it happening like mm-hmm. you you found out because the child wasn't moving normally or, or had some sort of asymmetry or you know other other abnormality on exam so again my assumption is that there's there's not a lot of acute management to it because mostly you're you're discovering the symptoms long after the the insult happened yes yeah in one study it showed that 94 percent of neonates with stroke had seizures at the time of stroke. So sometimes seizures are biggest clue that maybe something's wrong with the brain. But there is a big chunk of these perinatal stroke that we call presumed perinatal stroke that they show up later with developmental delays, early handedness, um, some spasticity when they get older, those types of things that are found older. All right, well, let's move into the older ones because those are a little bit more likely for us in the ER to be the ones that are the first picking up on mm-hmm. it. Are there any uh, breakdowns or, or most common signs or symptoms that you can you can give us? So the most common um, signs and symptoms of a stroke are very similar to adults. So mostly hemiparesis, so weakness on one side, speech or language disturbance. Lately, I've been getting a lot of kids who say they just can't text anymore. Uh, So that's the new, uh, some of the new aphasic exams that we're seeing in kids. Vision disturbances, and that's usually a loss of vision, like complete blackout of vision. And then some ataxia. Okay. We also see a fair bit of complex migraine. Do you have any idea on how we can go about differentiating complex migraine from a stroke? So sometimes I can use my neurological localization to prove that it's not in a lesion, like a localizable lesion. But it is common. Stroke mimics are super common in children. Uh, There's some studies that say up to 60 to 90 percent of kids who present with focal neurological deficits have a stroke mimic. So it is really difficult. Yeah. Sometimes I think maybe we get 
at least in RER, lulled into not thinking about it because the majority of them turn out to be a migraine. Yeah. A lot of those kids have had that issue before, but the first time they've they've had something like that, I feel like you guys get called for potential stroke alerts a lot for those patients. Yeah, and I think that's the right thing to do. I think when it's a kid presenting with the first time with weakness on one side of the body, I think we need to rule out stroke because that would be the worst case scenario. Other stroke mimics that are common outside of migraine are Bell's palsy sometimes can trick us to think it's a stroke, seizure with Todd's paralysis, brain tumor, demyelinating disease. So we end up finding a lot of other neurological, even urgencies and emergencies when they first call a stroke alert. And sometimes it just takes a little digging to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, true hemiparesis is pretty hard for them to fake. So like, yes. it's usually a, <laughs> that's a real deal thing. Yes. Um, what, what sorts of risk factors are we looking at in, in the, the older kids? Yeah. So the, the biggest risk factor is one that uh, it's called an arteriopathy. We call these either like transient cerebral arteriopathies or focal cerebral arteriopathies. We don't truly understand why kids get the, these, but we do think it's more of a pediatric problem than an adult problem. There was a recent study called VIPS-1 that showed that um, about 45% of the kids with stroke had an evidence of an acute herpes virus infection. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, we don't exactly know how to treat treat that, and we don't really know what to do with it. There is a second VIPS-2 study enrolling right now, and us at um, Children's Colorado, we are enrolling in that study to look at it further. And this this focal arteriopathy, is is that, you know, like a, a structural defect in the artery where it's either stenotic or more tortuous than, than it would be at baseline? Yeah. So we okay. think it's actually like inflammation inside of just a portion of the vessel okay. and it causes it to be occlusive. Some of them get better and those are more transient. We don't know at the time what it's going to be, but some progress. We do know that a good amount of them do progress to either very close to fully occlusive or nearly occlusive um, over time. Let's move to diagnosis. Yeah. You've got a patient in front of you who has got you know, facial asymmetry or hemiparesis or, or a visual field deficit, something that you think is is potentially stroke. What's the the imaging of choice or what do you do? A lot of tertiary quaternary children's hospitals have a stroke alert pathway. Most of those places have chosen to use MRI as the first imaging modality uh, because they're, the stroke mimic is so high. And so we can really rule out stroke quickly with an MRI. Um, but a lot of smaller places don't have that ability. And so grabbing a CT head to rule out a hemorrhage, a big tumor, anything like that is, is a reasonable first option. Does that need either the CT or the MRI uh, IV contrast? No contrast is needed for just this the regular head imaging. Okay. Um, you know, I sometimes think of MRIs as, as being protocols that can take a long time. You know, like there are some brain MRIs that you're they're in the machine for 30 to 60 minutes. I'm, I'm assuming there's something different about what we're doing for stroke. So it definitely depends on where you're at. Um, so there are fast MRI protocols where you can get the main three images within about eight minutes, eight to 10 minutes. Um, we are looking, the initial image is the DWI, the diffusion weighted. That tells us if there's a stroke or not a stroke. We usually grab a, a blood sequence, depending on the hospital you're at. It could be a GRE or SWI to tell you if there's any hemorrhage. And then we often grab an MRA, an, um, an angiogram early to be sure that um, if there is a stroke, 
to make sure the vessels are clear. If there was a large vessel occlusion, more treatment could possibly be done gotcha. for that child. What's the urgency of the timing for this? So I, I think that personally, I think faster is better. Uh, because there's a because the differential with a kid with a focal neurological deficit includes other neurological emergencies, I think faster is always better. Okay. Things like hemorrhage might need surgical intervention right away. Things like tumors have different management. So I think it is always important to get it faster. Let's move into management because mm-hmm. this is really, I think, the big place where mm-hmm. I feel like I am I can pick out the kid with a, a neurologic deficit and know that I need imaging. And then mm-hmm. what do we do next? Yeah. So do you have a way that you like to think about the, the breakdown of what treatment looks like? So we have to extrapolate the the knowledge that we have from the adult stroke data to children. Uh, You're telling me we don't have a whole lot of (laughs) randomized trials of of childhood stroke? We attempted one. Uh, It's called the TIPS trial, a thrombolytics and pediatric stroke, uh, and no one got enrolled. Uh, for a couple of years. So we tried. Yeah, but ter- uh, Turns out not very many people want want their children being in a randomized <laughs> medical trial. So we, we run into this all the exactly. time. I was sort of asking it tongue-in-cheek because exactly. we lack data all over the place. Exactly. Um, but in the adult side, when we think about strokes, the first question is, you know, do they meet criteria for IV thrombolytics or IV altiplase or IV TPA is what we call it? Um That one is always the first decision point because it needs to be given within four and a half hours of symptom onset. Unfortunately, kids hardly ever come in in that time window, either because parents kind of think, oh, they'll they'll sleep it off or, oh, they're just acting funny, or it's a child who can't really tell you the symptoms. So... It gets lost. Which is true most yeah. of the time. That's sort of the, the dirty secret of my job is like most kids need nothing, but the ones who need something usually need it pretty fast. Yeah. So that's always the first decision point. I've actually never given a child TPA. Over the phone, I, I recommended a TPA one time to a 14-year-old boy who was an adult-sized person. Um, but besides that, it doesn't happen that often. The second thing that we have been doing in kids a little bit more frequently, at least here, is um, endovascular treatments. And that's mostly with uh, thrombectomy. So we actually go and pull the clot out with one of our neurointerventionalists. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably a service that most children's hospitals don't have in-house. And that's the same for us. That that doesn't, we don't have a, an in-house pediatric endovascular specialist. I don't know that there's enough to keep them in business. Um, um, so when do you make that call or, you know, h- how do you go about deciding if they need to transfer somewhere where they can get that? I think the biggest thing is to get the imaging and if they have a large vessel occlusion. So that means it looks like a th- like a thrombus sitting in the internal carotid artery or the um, proximal part of the M1 of the middle cerebral artery. Those are really the main indications for adult thrombectomy. And so I always want to be careful that like, we actually want to see a clot in one of those big vessels and think we can pull it out. Okay. In the interim, or maybe with or without going for endovascular therapy, is there a place for some sort of anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy? We often will give aspirin just because we think that's helpful. We do that with adults as well. Uh, I don't think there's any ever any wrong with that unless they have some contraindication right. to it. A couple of other topics that come up a bunch in management, and yeah. I know there's not much data, but I'm wondering if you can give us Herschel Gestalt. Sure. What do we do with blood pressure? Yeah. 
Good question. <laughs> um, so in adults, we think that allowing for permissive hypertension in the first 48 to 72 hours after a stroke is appropriate. Um, and the thought behind that is that we're letting our bodies know when we have a stroke and when we know we need more blood in places. So the pressure goes up when you've had a stroke. And we think by allowing the higher blood pressures the first 48 or 72 hours, we're allowing some of those collaterals to maybe feed some of that ischemic stroke area. Um, However, in kids, it's really difficult to know what's permissive hypertension for them. I depend a lot on like the WHO guidelines with the height and the weight and the age and sex to figure out what the 95th percentile for the kid is and try to keep them in that area. I find that a lot of times kids like to just, they'll keep themselves up a little bit. I don't get super aggressive unless it's very high. Okay. If you do have to treat it, something that's very clearly super high, let's say it's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's a six-year-old with a systolic of 190. Mm-hmm. Like there's no question mm-hmm. that's high. Do you, what agent do you use or, or do you do you prefer some sort of continuous IV drip versus a, a intermittent medication? I think, at least speaking with my PICU colleagues, that they would prefer a drip because I think it keeps it more consistent. Uh, our colleagues will usually place an art line um, so that they can really manage the blood pressure uh, closely. They've been using things like nicardipine. Yeah, and, I think nicardipine's been our go-to. Yeah. Um, it's it's really quick on and off, and it, it's fairly easy to manage. And yeah. um, if you swing too far one direction or the other, it, it you're not stuck there for very long. Yep. How about glucose management? So I know this, I feel like, gets talked about frequently is what do we aim for? And do you want to let them ride a little bit high so they don't get hypoglycemic? Mm -hmm. Is there still concern that hyperglycemia is an independent risk factor for poor outcomes from strokes? And I think that was proven in adults. I don't know if there's anything in kids. There's nothing in kids. I do want to put it out there that it you guys do this all the time in emergency medicine to, to check a glucose when they get there. Uh, <laughs> it never hurts to be reminded. <laughs> exactly. Um, because hypo or hyperglycemia can present as a focal neurological deficit or seizures or that sort of thing. So correcting that in the acute period, we do know that that helps. As far as kind of management post, we know they've had a stroke. We don't know where to keep them in kids. In adults, they've done a couple of different trials. They tried one that kept them really tight uh, with really intense control, and they found the outcome was no different. So the recommendation in adults is just to keep it less than 180. Okay. Right now, yeah, that I think that's a that's a fair aim. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought to ask about this, but um, if there are signs of like significantly increased intracranial pressure from whatever has caused their stroke, mm-hmm. can we use hypertonic saline in mannitol? Is there any reason why we we couldn't approach it in a similar manner? No, okay. I think that's all. It's uh, that those are our main uh, medical managements for okay. increased ICPs kind of across the board. Um, and then I think the last thing that we get asked a lot when I get called on the phone is, do we or do we not do seizure prophylaxis? And if so, what drug? So there is no indication for seizure prophylaxis uh, if they haven't had a seizure. Okay. The only time where I think it's okay to do seizure prophylaxis is in an ruptured, unsecured aneurysm that has bled because a seizure in that child with an unsecured aneurysm could be devastating. Okay. Meaning that like they could re-bleed. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. A couple of other things I thought about while we were chatting. Do all patients who have a thrombotic stroke that maybe looks like it's embolized from elsewhere, do they all get evaluations for things like PFOs or some sort of cardiac anomaly? 
Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, anytime you have what, if we think it's an embolic stroke, the common source is heart, especially in kids who don't have like the bad athro disease in their car- carotids. Yeah. That's another benefit of doing what we're doing. Most kids haven't been alive long enough yeah. to really abuse their bodies. So yes. can you be the first person to explain to me what Moya Moya is and why I should care about it? Yes. I'm going to try. Yeah. I'm going to really try. <laughs> I mean, I think I should care. Yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah. So it is really hard to explain, but I've now explained it to like multiple families last couple months. So hopefully I can tell it to you. What it is, it's a progressive narrowing. So a a progressive narrowing of the internal carotid artery as it enters like the skull, as it enters and connects into the middle cerebral artery. Uh, We don't necessarily know why it happens. Um, There are some risk factors like sickle cell disease. We think Maybe the sickled cells cause some inflammation in that area. Trisomy 21 is also a risk factor. NF1 is also a risk factor for it, but then kids just get it. It's progressive over time, so the artery gets smaller and smaller. The brain gets hungrier and hungrier for blood, and so these little teeny blood vessels start growing around that area, and that's where the name comes from, Moya Moya's puff of smoke in Japanese. Uh, And when you... Um, push contrast through it, it kind of just like puffs out into the smoke. Oh, so it's all the little collaterals that are doing that. Yes. I, this is this is groundbreaking <laughs> for me. Um. And so they often will present with TIAs, okay. uh, actually, because if their blood pressure drops in any way, that perfusion is not getting through that narrowed vessel. And so um, they'll present with like transient symptoms. I just had a, a little girl in clinic where all of a sudden, she would she would just um, couldn't talk. She just kind of looked dazed. Uh, we kind of I kind of call them like moya moya fits or like episodes where they just like not enough blood is getting to their brain. But then they recover, they rest and recover, and the blood pressure we think goes up, and then they do okay. So often on imaging, we see little evidence of little small strokes. Um, sometimes we can see just evidence of kind of chronic like loss of oxygen. But if we can catch them early enough, we do have surgical interventions where we can bring blood um, from the outside of the skull actually into the into the brain. That's amazing. I yeah. love that that is possible. <laughs> I know. I can't think of a better place to stop talking about the subject than in me having a revelation about Moya Moya and finally understanding what it was and where this puff of smoke comes from. Hopefully that will help you out on your boards, but also makes a little bit more sense about how that is different than many of the other traditional stroke diagnoses. I'm going to have a lot of information in the show notes on this one with a ton of resources, but Dr. Barry is also happy to answer additional questions. So if there's something that came up during this interview that you'd love additional information on, please let me know. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. You can find the rest of my podcasts at www.littlebigmed.com. If you've got a second, please head over wherever you're listening to this and leave a review. It really does help other people find the show and keep me going. Thanks for your time today. I'll see you next month. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 